Okay, assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. Um, interestingly, the other day when I was kind of uh, just taking stock of all of the surahs that we've covered and I, it struck me, you know, I should count how many halakhas we've done. And if you can believe it, this is our 100th episode since we started Usuli, which is crazy. Um, and I think back to um, December of 2017 when we started on this journey and where we were and even like when I go back and I look at the, the video and how awkward it is and like of course the cringeworthiness of looking at myself like trying to speak when I actually had no intention of speaking. Anyway, it was amazing. So back then it's just, it's you know interesting to look back and say we really had no idea where this journey would take us and I'm so grateful for where we are um, today and what we're working on and just what an incredible um, journey it's been. I wanted to share um, an email that I got. Um, you know that I like to share really beautiful emails and we're, we're always like so blessed to receive these. I cannot thank Professor Abul Fadl, Grace Song, and everyone else involved in the Suli Institute enough for the work that they have been doing. I am nearly 30 years old now, and I would not be exaggerating if I said that the vision of Islam presented by you is the first presentation of this religion that I have ever felt truly morally and intellectually satisfied with. Despite much searching, I have never felt comfortable in any Muslim community or grouping or movement, be it physical or intellectual. Here in the UK, I had resigned myself to feeling permanently alienated from almost all other Muslims. However, even though you are on the other side of the world through the Usuli Institute's videos and Professor Abul Fadl's books and articles, I feel I have finally found a space within this Ummah that I can call home. God bless you all. Um, it's, I was so touched to receive this again. Like The emails that we receive from people are just literally out of this world. And, um, and it's really beautiful. The emails are not just to the professor and I, but to the Usuli Institute, um, the other people that are here. And you know, yesterday we had like our weekly admin meeting, and I just you know had to take a moment to just like really thank everybody because, you know, we, what we're trying to do here is um, present a you know a definitely a different face of Islam. I mean, we're focused on ethics, um, and you know, we have talked about how. I mean, for me as a convert, I, I really appreciate and an intentional about speaking in a normal fashion. You know, I don't like the idea that every time I walk into a Muslim space that all of a sudden you have a different tonality, a different vocabulary. Um, you know, all of a sudden now you say mashallah every two words, inshallah every two words. You know, there are certain things that you can't talk about, there are certain things you're not supposed to ask questions about. There's just a whole persona that you're supposed to adopt if you want to play the game. And I don't even know if people recognize it, but it's very suffocating, especially for someone who didn't come from that kind of space. So it means a lot to me when we're in a space and we can speak normally as smart, articulate, thoughtful, you know, questioning people that also, you know, have a lot of um, important questions about a religion that, you know, is under attack, that is in the midst of Islamophobia, that is, um, has an entire industry dedicated to creating doubt, um, and you see the effect of that in the Muslim population and especially in our youth. So, you know, what we're trying to do is something very different and very unique. Um, and I feel so blessed to be in a space where the people that I'm doing this work with are just as, you know, like passionate. Um, you know, we are a group of overachievers and perfectionists, which I think is amazing. But on top of that, um, people who are truly dedicated to um, this message that we're learning on the Quran and helping others to find their way um, to Islam so that it makes sense for our day and age. It allows them to be better human beings and think about, you know, understand how better to address the challenges um, in our world and even be proud to say that they're Muslim. 
And that's a huge and tall order because I know I certainly hold back when I know when I talk about being Muslim, even among Muslims, even, you know, I, I have to be careful. I feel about what I say that is Islamic or Quranic because I don't want to scare anybody away. And this is the first space where we really haven't done that. Our vocabulary has changed because we recognize that what we're learning is so relevant to what we're doing. And isn't it a shame that we are the only ones that feel comfortable speaking in this way? So I'm hoping that we can change you know, the, the vernacular even when it comes to you know, normal Muslim, humanistic, ethical ideas. Um, that's what we're here to do. And um, one of the things that we thought would be very, very cool um, is to introduce some of the members of Usuli Institute through, I wanted to you know, share this space, this introduction space. You know, sometimes I've like, invited people um, to come um, think about taking my space here um, and sharing in the introduction. Um, people are shy, they don't like it, so it takes a little bit of um, arm pulling or arm twisting. Um, but the point is that this is not just um, you know, one one-off sheikh who, you know, people like to say, oh, he's marginal, he's medieval, he's liberal, he's whatever, whatever. I mean, literally, if you put all the accusations together, it would not make sense, it's not rational. But one thing that we can say is he's firmly grounded in the tradition and he's focused on ethics and beauty and morality. Um, but anyway, I, um, the point is to show that this is more than just two people that are committed to a cause, but that there are incredibly smart people that are here with us on this journey, um, working hard on preserving this tafsir for future generations. And so today I'm very um, honored and blessed um, to introduce to you um, our first um, unwilling <laughs> person um, to just uh, give an introduction. And you know, this is, um, also really reminds me of a story that the sheikh told me a long time, or actually I guess he shares this in the Holocaust, how the Prophet really focused on each individual as an individual and looked at their strengths and played to those strengths. And that's no exception here because we have a group of diverse people, each with very different strengths. Um, and Joe is, um, is one the person who is in charge, he's the editor-in-chief of our Tafsir project. So he is in charge of making sure that you know, the transcripts of these halakha sessions, after they're transcribed, um, become massaged, and they will eventually work their way to the ultimate publication. Um, so he is editor-in-chief of this entire project, which is a huge job, um, and he's in incredibly brilliant and dedicated, um, and I think um, I wanted him to have an opportunity to introduce himself and talk about what he wants to talk about. I don't have no idea what he wants to talk about, so come, um, please come on up. <laughs> I should give you the background because Joe, I don't know if he's going to introduce himself because he's very, he's very humble. Um, but Joe um, came to us, he's uh, got a PhD from the University of Edinburgh in Islamic studies or in Islamic studies. Um, and so he um, and, and his wife, Hamdullah, have come um, to be here with us for a year and he's just top notch. Asalaamu so. Alaikum everyone. Um, as I'm sure you can tell, Grace kind of had to get me to do this kicking and screaming, but when Grace asks you to do something, you can't really say no. So, um, I'm Joe, I'm from Manchester, I'm a student here on Project Illumin, and as Grace has said, I'm editor-in-chief of the project, uh, the Tafsir project, eventually in a few years, turning all of these incredible halakhas into a published Tafsir. It's not just me, um, there's a team, eight of us in total, of brilliant, dedicated volunteers, uh, one of whom I see is on the interactive group, so I'm Rashida. Some of them are here. Um, where to start? I thought it might be useful just to talk about my own journey, my own story, how I came across the professor's thought. And perhaps it will be of interest and benefit. I suspect that my own story is perhaps a bit more unusual 
um, bit unique. When I first came across the professor, I was non-Muslim. And now that I come to think of it, my encounter with the professor's thought and, and my journey with the professor's thought is actually intimately engaged. It's very tightly connected to my journey to Islam. Uh, it started, I was thinking about this earlier, it started almost a decade ago exactly, in October 2011. I was non-Muslim, typical 21-year-old student. I didn't know anything about Islam, literally nothing, blank canvas. You ask me about Islam in 2011, uh, Muhammad, Quran, Mecca, that's about it. <laughs> so I'm doing a degree and I have an elective course. I've got 20 credits that I need to fill. I look at the options and there was a course on New Age religion, one on Buddhism and one called Islam, Gender and Ethics. And I thought, well, you know, Islam's in the news. Why not? It sounds more interesting than the others. I'd love to say that I was a diligent, conscientious student, but I mean, I really wasn't. This was how much thought went into these kind of decisions. So I'm doing this course on Islam, Gender and Ethics. It wasn't an introductory course, but I was a beginner, so I was struggling for a bit. But I was getting into it. And then on the third or fourth week, the weekly reading, the assigned reading, is chapter six of a book, this book, Speaking in God's Name. Never heard of the book, certainly never heard of the author. <sighs> you know, it's, at times you don't realize, oh God, I don't want to cry. <laughs> Classic. Classic, it always happens. <laughs> You know, the kind of like Damascene moment conversion thing, that, that doesn't really happen. That's kind of overplayed. The reality is you need years and the benefit of hindsight to be able to look back and to know what were the major turning points in your life. You don't realise it at the time. You're just sleepwalking. It's only with the benefit of hindsight. Doing this weekly reading of this chapter, of this book, by this author, yeah, I had no idea at the time. I started doing this weekly reading and from the first sentence, the opening sentence, do you remember what the sentence was? Sheikh, chapter six, no. <laughs> I remember it, I still remember it to say, Islamic law has staunchly resisted codification at least until the contemporary age. Hmm? <laughs> and I remember just reading this and thinking, and I had to read it again, I said, wait, what? Let's do that again. Islamic law has staunchly resisted codification at least until the contemporary age. I know now what I didn't know then, which is that I had a very preconceived idea of law, of religious law, basically shaped by the biblical tradition, you know, Old Testament, do this, don't do this, do this, don't, 10 commandments. And I just remember thinking to myself, how can a law not be codified? If a law isn't codified, how do people know what it is? How do people follow a law that isn't uniform and codified? What, what was this? And then the second half of the sentence, what the hell is this about the contemporary age? What happened in the contemporary age that this codified up? I didn't know what the author, the professor was on about, but I was interested. I was engaged. I then read the chapter, and the chapter is brilliant. If you haven't read chapter six of this book, please, I could not encourage you strongly enough. It is polemical. It is iconoclastic in the very best sense of the term. He takes these fatawa from big Saudi names, bin bars, and just demolishes them. It is brutal, it is brilliant. I was hooked. With hindsight, that reading sparked an interest in Islamic studies, an interest which became a passion, a passion which became kind of an obsession, 
an obsession which surprised me, it surprised my family and friends, like, what the hell has happened to Joe? <laughs> it's started a journey which I ended up changing my degree in graduating in Islamic studies, I ended up doing further studies, further degrees, travelling abroad, learning Arabic, and before you know it, five years later, I'm Muslim. Um, again, you just don't know these turning points with, unless you have the hindsight, and it is another lesson there. We can plan our lives, but God laughs. We can think we have it all in order, and we can plan, we can plan, you know, a few years I'm going to be here, I mean, I'm sure God just laughs. I mean, there's the verse, you know, they plan, but I plan. So it would be too linear to say, I read this book and converted. That's not how it happened. It was far more circular, swings and roundabouts, ups and downs. But six years later, I'm Muslim. And it is at that time, as a Muslim, six years later, that I actually returned to the professor's books. I, I should just say, this is not going to be a conversion story. I, I, I hate, I don't do conversion stories. Even the guys here don't know my conversion story, <laughs> which is probably a bit harsh. I mean, it's probably should by now. Um, I, I don't like it. I don't like the way that converts, particularly if they're white, are asked to perform. You know, dance for me, convert, tell me your story. Um, the way in which they're objectified or even fetishized. No, it's just a very unhealthy dynamic, so I don't do that. This is not a conversion story, but what I will say is, Converting to Islam is not easy. It's not just a change of belief and it's not just ritual practices. It's, it's everything, it's a change of worldview. It's being seen like a stranger by family and friends and everything. It's not easy. I've always thought that, you know like how you have five stages of grief? I've always thought, and I've joked about this with friends, there should be like another like theme, like the five stages of converting to Islam. The first stage, which is the short stage, sheer enthusiasm like you, you've just converted oh my god this is awesome prayer is incredible i love fajr fasting is so cool <laughs> that's the initial stage but that doesn't last unless you're grace that doesn't <laughs> grace has been muslim for 27 years but still has the enthusiasm of 27 minutes and unfortunately she is the exception that proves the rule most converts myself included that zeal, it dies out. We, we actually covered this in the Halakha, Surat al-Hadid, I think. Um, why does it die out? Many reasons. But that's the first stage. The second stage, confusion. You, you've got this enthusiasm. you found your answers. You, you love Islam. You love praying. But, but no one else does. Why does no one else? Why is every khutbah so bloody boring? Why are you not allowed to ask any questions? So why are the questions that you are allowed to ask are so inanimate? What is this? Confusion. The confusion very quickly becomes anger or bitterness at the way you're treated, the way you're objectified, fetishized, and not helped. Nobody taught me how to pray. I know, of white, I know of other Muslims, white Muslims, male and female. Nobody taught them how to pray, um, but they were bombarded with marriage proposals. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's funny. It's also kind of not funny. I mean, how, that speaks volumes. Is this how to... So we have... We have the enthusiasm, we have the confusion. Confusion very quickly gives way to bitterness and just, why? Why is it like this? And why on earth did nobody tell me it was like this? What I would have done for somebody to tell me when I first converted, oh, by the way, Joe, every khutbah is this boring. Don't travel around trying to find a good one. Because what's the alternative? You learn it the hard way. After months and months and months, and that flame, that, that, that spark of faith, 
it dies out, it gets snuffed out. The fourth stage, resignation. You converted to Islam, you've now known your way around the community, you know what the state of the community is like, and you resign to it and you make your peace. You, you, you understand the status quo and you make your way around. For my, in my experiences, this was keeping the rest of the Muslim community at an arm's distance, being the only Muslim in my own family, I just kind of, yeah, that's it. So there are the four stages of conversion to Islam, it's not five stages, it's four. I had gone through all this in the first 18 months, maybe two years, and I've probably gone through it several times over, it's like a conveyor belt. And it is at this time that I actually returned to the professor's works. Um, I don't remember the exact specifics, unfortunately, but I do remember feeling angry at myself for letting the flame die out, angry at the community, and frankly just lonely, and then somehow returning to the professor's works, reasoning with God, and conference of the books. And it was, I'm now Muslim. I'm asking completely different questions. I've got completely different answers I'm looking for. And it's like reading the professor afresh. And I can't quite express, it was like cold, cold water to a thirsty soul. It was like, yes, this is it. This is it. This is what I needed to hear. But here's what I wanted to emphasize. What aspects of the professor's works now were speaking to me? It wasn't the intellect, because I already knew that. You know, the professor in secular academia, the professor is a heavyweight. He is venerated. It seems the only people that don't venerate the professor are Muslims. Um, why is that? Is that because all oh, Muslims disagree with the professor? No, that's not the point, because secular academia disagrees with the professor, because secular academia is non-Muslim. But secular academia can appreciate the intellect and the achievements. So, sorry, I need to keep this before it becomes a run. Oh. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, have a halakah to get through. It's okay. So, so, I'm reading the professor afresh now as a convert, and it's like discovering him and his works all again. But what aspect is it? It was not the intellect, I knew that. Nor was it the personal example and the piety, because I had never met the professor yet. All that came later. What it was, more than anything, was just the common sense. I can't really phrase it better. The common sense. Yes, we have this intellect. And yes, we have this library. And yes, we have a hundred halakhas and thousands of lectures. But the beautiful thing is, it's the but. But the beautiful thing is, all of this is all about pointing us to an Islam that is natural, that is intuitive. I'm reading Conference of the Books and he's, the professor's saying, you know, Common sense, by the way, common sense means also a basic sense of priorities, a basic sense of ethics, a basic sense of justice. There are worse things happening than the tyranny of women showing their hair. There are genocides happening against Muslims left and right, and we're talking about nail varnish. Really, what the hell is it with nail varnish? If, they, if something is ugly and unjust, it cannot be divine. This is the beautiful thing about the professor's work. This is the beautiful thing about Asuli. It's, it's almost like the irony, the, the twist in the tail. Behind all the books, the half a dozen books and the 40 articles and the library, it just takes us right back to where we started. A natural, intuitive Islam. That's what I needed. Because we often say that, you know, in all these mosques and Islamic centres, you're expected to leave your intellect at the door. 
It's worse than that. You're expected to leave everything at the door. You're expected to leave your common sense at the door and enter a world of cognitive dissonance, of uncomfortable, an Islam that we've created that is uncomfortable, that doesn't sit right with us, that prickles, that doesn't, weighs heavy on our chest. And we all know it's not right, but we can't really say it's right. It was the common sense. I think that's an aspect of the professor's thought. Just, just, yes, these books can be quite heavy. The, the, speaking with God's name is, is a heavy book. Some of these halakas can talk about, you know, we're unashamedly quite smart intellectual way of doing things here. But don't forget the but. But it is all about an Islam that deep down is intuitive. If only we choose to listen to it. We've got a halakha to get to, so I wanted to say a lot more about like how I came across the Suli and stuff, but next time. Next time. Should we continue? If, if I'm allowed back on yes. back on the platform. Um, oh, that is. <laughs> before I go, Professor, like I, I say this every single day to myself, but I don't think I say it to you enough. Just, just thank you, because I know you get. The professor gets a lot of letters saying, you know. Uh, you saved my faith in Islam. My faith in Islam was never in doubt. I converted to Islam. I always believed in Islam. I always believed in the Prophet. But I had just given up on Muslims. And your work, and what you're doing, has restored my faith in Muslims. As long as somebody is saying it, saying it, and as long as others are prepared to listen, then it's not over. Then there's hope. If somebody's saying it and people are prepared to listen to take it seriously, there's hope. We might be under attack, we might be in the trenches, taking grenades, but we're still in the battle. There's still hope. So thank you. That was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> You need two minutes. Okay, so Sheikh needs two minutes, but let me just say, I mean, you know, this is this is why I think people needed to meet some of the people here because you see, like, what we're doing is something very special, and I think that the people that feel passionate, I think it is five stages because the fifth stage is meeting the professor and reading his work and discovering how can I sustainably be a Muslim and not lose my mind? You know, and that this is the hope. And this is the same experience that I had when I encountered the professor, you know, 27 whatever years ago, um, because I had a year of that same experience. And, and it's so interesting because so many people use very similar words. You said cold water to a thirsty person. I said fresh air to a dying you know, suffocating person. That was exactly my experience, and other people have said something very similar since then. So this is why I certainly um, have felt in my entire, you know, Muslim life that if Islam has a future, it's through this, and it's, you know, I, I will live and die by, you know, serving this message. Um, and so, alhamdulillah, um, Joe is, is, you know, so special, which now you've seen, um, and you can see why God chose him to be in charge of this very special project, um, because he is definitely an overachiever, definitely a workaholic, definitely a perfectionist, but is one of the most beautiful souls I've ever met. And so I'm very, I feel very blessed to know Joe, and, um, and now hopefully you, you all feel some of that as well. 
So let's take a break, and then inshallah we will, we will, and Joe, did you cry? Almost. Almost, okay. Well, see, there's a tradition here that if you're up here, Marwa didn't make it. She, she, we'll have to start timing, like how, how long you can speak without crying. Um, and alhamdulillah, truly alhamdulillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Subhanallah al-Azim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad. Al-Nabiyyil Ameen, Al-Mufar Rahmatan Lil-Alameen, Khatam Al-Rusli Wa Al-Anbiya'i Ajma'in, Wa Ala Alihi Al-Mayameen, Wa Ala Ashabihi Al-Tayyibin, Wa Ala Man Attabahu Bihsanin Ila Yawm Al-Din. Allahumma Ya Aliyya Azim, La Tukallifna Illa Usana. Allahumma Ya Rabb, Nakhfir Lana, In Akhtaqna. ولا تحمل علينا إسرا كما حملتها الذين من قبلنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به يا رب واعفو عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا قوم الكافرين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سورة الأنعام Surah Al-An'am, the longest surah revealed in Mecca. Um, and it's, uh, it's a surah that is revealed after Al-Isra, the turning point that we've talked about several times, and also revealed after Surat Yunus, after Surat Hud, um, after Surat Yusuf, after Surat Al-Hijr. And most authorities, most authorities say that it was revealed in the last year before the Hijrah. So you pay careful attention because, as we said before, this is Allah speaking to people as they are about to undertake a fundamental change in their life and to undertake an irreversible commitment. Um, Allah is speaking to persecuted people who have now, because of the persecution, have been vetted out. So it is the strongest and the most hardcore that remained Muslim. And as Surah Al-An'am itself points out, there are some that did not pass the test, that some that couldn't take the, the, the pressure and um, went the other way. And they're, they're, uh, the Hijrah, which as we said before, a lot of people often forget that the Hijrah meant a complete and total sacrifice because the Meccans did not allow the Muslims to perform a hijrah or to go to Medina with their property and possessions. 
the Meccans said, those of you that we will allow to leave, you can leave, but you have to leave all your possessions and property, your money behind. So it's a, it's a massive transformation. And you have to pay careful attention to what Allah chooses to tell people at this critical juncture. And what Allah chooses to tell people after the fairly sophisticated message that we lived with through the sequence of Surat Yunus, Surat Hud, Surat Yusuf. It is not an exaggeration to say that if you understood Surat Al-An'am properly, it is impossible for the author of the Qur'an to be human. Because what it tells Muslims at this point is something that charismatic leaders or human activists um, would, would, would simply not think of. It, it is a, a message that is not geared towards um, a political advantage, it is not it is not a message geared towards um, an emotional consolation um, it is not a pep talk for people that ha will be undertaking an enormous or, or who have undertaken an enormous sacrifice but a remarkably surprising message because it is it is as if, and, and I'm skipping ahead intentionally in the case of Surat Al-An'am, and then we'll, we'll break it down, that is intended to clearly define the most important and critical relationship in your life. Surat Al-An'am comes in and says, with everything you're going through, with everything you're going through, there is a very serious risk of shirk. And we'll talk about shirk in Surat Al-An'am. That it is a very, there is a very serious risk that your compass would be defined by your human encounters and your human disputes. But you are in a false paradigm unless Allah is the core and center. But then it also says something, as we will see, that is quite remarkable about law 
Muslims didn't know this, but Allah knew that once the Hijrah is accomplished, Muslims will soon be engaged in the process of making laws and implementing laws. And it comes and says something about law that is truly remarkable and unfortunately so many Muslims in the modern age miss it. They don't pay attention as we'll see to and anchors the Islamic message yet again for the third time in the Meccan period in a ethical code as if all the law must serve that ethical code. And if the law fails to serve this ethical code, then we have a problem. And we'll see this inshallah. But then the third thing it does in the same way in Surah Al-Hadid, if you recall, we said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling Muslims, be like iron, strong but malleable, strong but in fact adaptable. You don't break when you're exposed to heat, you bend. You bend and you retain strength. In Surah Al-An'am, The message is don't be cattle. Don't be mere an'am as you engage in this hijrah. Now, normally, any charismatic leader that is about to lead, and we know this from the sociology of cults, right? that any charismatic leader that is about to lead his people into a massive or a monumental change, the thing that the leader would emphasize, and we've seen this throughout history a million times, is obedience. But Surah Al-An'am doesn't emphasize obedience. It emphasizes being a human being with an ethical backbone. And this ethical compass, ethical structure, um, is what distinguishes human beings who are effectively cattle from human beings who are, and in fact, embrace the, dev the, the meaningfulness of divinity. When Surah Al-An'am was revealed among the, although it's a long surah, but most authorities note that it was revealed all at one time. There are unreliable reports that some verses was, were revealed in Medina, but um, again, 
the, the results of conjecture and contextualizing or projecting backwards upon historical events, it, it is a, we can say confidently that Surat al-Anam was all revealed in Mecca, and not only that, but it was all revealed at once. And its revelation was a significant enough historical event. It was a, a heavy moment for the early Muslims surrounding the Prophet ﷺ that we find in the tradition what, in my opinion, are clearly inventions or unreliable reports that when Surah Al-An'am was revealed, um, uh, it was yeah, that um, 70,000 angels came down from heaven to earth to mark the revelation of Surah Al-An'am. Now, when you look at, the, of course, the 70,000, um, the, the, the narrative itself, it's unreliable. But even unreliable narratives like this signify a historical event that were memorialized through an exaggerated human imagination. So, when you find various narratives that some say, oh, there were 70,000 angels when Surah Al-An'am was revealed. Others say there were 20,000 angels when Surah Al-An'am was revealed. Others say that there were 100,000 angels that were revealed at Surah Al-An'am. Others say that the, that the color of the sky or the color of the moon changed when Surah Al-An'am were revealed. And you look at the chains of transmission and you realize that the, that none of these traditions reliably go back to the Prophet but as a scholar what you realize is that the collective memory of Muslims remembered or retained that it was a very important event in their life and typical of the medieval mind the way the medieval mind worked the way that you signified or the way that you preserved important historical events is through mythology. So it's not surprising that there were people that invented mythology and attributed, to, attributed it to the Prophet But it's not just completely irrelevant. In fact, it is relevant because it tells you something about how Surah Al-An'am was perceived at the time of revelation. There are also a lot of traditions, a lot of hadith that talk about the um, the blessings of reciting Surah Al-An'am, uh, um, about how, how much of your sins are forgiven if you recite Surah Al-An'am or uh, how many hasanats you gain if you recite Surat al-An'am. Um, there are many reports about the Prophet ﷺ reciting the entire Surat al-An'am in a single raqqa. 
And again, all of these are of the same genre. What they're articulating is what the, the collective historical memory retaining the significance of this moment. But you have to understand the, the, the way that the medieval narrative worked. And the medieval narrative would often memorialize things by these exaggerations uh, that strike us, strike the modern mind as odd or unusual or whatnot. Anyway. Okay, and inshallah we'll see why Surat Al-Nam was so significant. So, it starts out as so many surah in the Quran start out with Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, Alladhi Khalaqa Samawati Wal Ard Wajala Zulumati Wal Nur Thumma Alladhina Kafaru Birabbihim Yadilun. Now, the beginning of so many of the surah with Alhamd is for a clear reason as actually has been pointed out by so many scholars of the Quran, that the beginning of any type of real relationship with Allah is that the attitude of alhamd, of gratitude, would be anchored in your heart. Because if you do not have that, belief itself becomes meaningless. What your entire relationship with Allah emerges from is a realization that whatever you enjoy, even if it is the product through the product of what you perceive to be your own effort or your own work or your own um, investment that whatever you enjoy even if you see it as a part of your own fortune or good luck that it all goes back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if what interferes between you and your relationship with Allah is a belief in luck, in, um, you know, cosmic signs, in fortune telling or some type of, um, which of course were, were far more popular in the pre-modern age. But in our modern age, if you believe in that, in that what I enjoy is the result of market forces, or what I enjoy is the result of my family connections, or if what I, if what I enjoy is the result of my position in the state, fundamentally, your relationship with Allah is broken, and nothing good will grow out of this relationship. A relationship with Allah begins and grows from being 
anchored in alhamd. And you start out, as the Sufi-esque tradition points out, you start out with alhamd for all that is good, and an awareness of alhamd for all that is good, even your ability to speak every meal that you eat, every time you're able to go to the bathroom and relieve yourself, every time you're able to sleep and wake up, every time you're able to wear a piece of clothes, every time you're able to open your eyes and see something, every time you're able to speak without impediment, all of it. But it then develops into alhamd for even what you do not like. So that there is a relationship of complete gratitude. This is precisely why so many of the Quran, Quranic surahs begin with Alhamdulillah. Again, I underscore it because we don't teach our children this. Because this is again part of the, the Islam that unfortunately we moderns have corrupted. It doesn't begin with learning the law. It doesn't begin with a proper performance of rituals. It doesn't begin with, and as we will see, because we'll talk about this, as because the Prophet talks about this, with knowing how to read the Quran according to the proper rules of recitation. It, that's not where it starts. It all starts with gratitude. So, Alhamdulillah, who created the heavens and earth, and notice a a, 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 a rather a fine point. Wajala, he created the heavens and earth. Wajala al-dulumati wal-nur. Not necessarily created al-dulumati wal-nur. Jala means made. Or some commentators note that because Allah creates light, the dhulmat is a necessary condition of the absence of light. And note also that it doesn't say وَجَعَلَ الظَّلَامُ nur because then الظَّلَام would be an actual um, corporate entity would be an actual material state, like a nur. But a dhulumat, the language itself communicates to you that nur is a thing. Light is a thing. Light is something that you actually create, produce. But a dhulumat is the absence of a thing. ثُمَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ يَعْدِلُونَ يَعْدِلُونَ 
so many tafsir, so many uh, uh, translations will translate it as, then after that, so many ascribe equals to Allah. But Ya'adilun can, can, has a dual meaning. Either ascribing equals to Allah or simply finding an alternative to Allah. Ya'adilun, so the alternative to Allah could be anything. As we will see, the rest of the surah talks about, that if your belief in, sometimes your belief in logic itself could be udul anillah, or your belief in um, a, a Sufi master who effectively becomes your everything could be Adul Anillah. Or your belief in a job or a nation or whatnot. Okay. Huwa alladhi khalaqakum min tinin thumma qada ajalan wa ajalun musamma indah thumma antum tamtaroon I'm going to try not to go verse by verse with the surah, but it's difficult because Surah Al-An'am is very, it's one of these surahs that is very dense with meaning. Um, just keep in mind that it starts out by reminding you, after reminding you of the the, the core relationship of Alhamd and reminding you of a core reality that there is the created light of Allah and then the absence of that light which is darkness, many folds of darkness. It reminds you of a reality that you as a human being solely on immaterial material terms solely on material terms you wouldn't amount to much you have been created of elements of soil the earth And with this creation, you have an appointed time that you can delude yourself as much as you want, but your time, when your time comes, it runs up, it runs up. It is like, you know, you're put in a race, and whether you choose to run or walk, the race has a set time. Or you're, you're, you choose to just stay in place and you're carried off the course. You know, whatever you choose to do. It is ironic because it's all preset. 
But yet, although this would seem to be obvious, that without, and keep this in mind because this is going to be a very, a very important theme in Surah Al-An'am, that without divinity, it is hard to ascribe value to that material creature that we call human being. And as we will see, in fact, it will be hard to distinguish that material human being from cattle. And although we all have, we all exist with a ticking clock, but yet that very obvious fact is often ignored and people live oblivious to it. Okay. And then a reminder of another obvious point, a point that was made by now several times in the Quran, that Allah is everywhere. And we will we'll see what how this goes back to the corporality of Allah. But Allah is everywhere. There is nothing that you can possibly do or engage in that Allah doesn't know. So you exist in the full view of the divine. So four and five, I'm not gonna, not much to, to add that وَمَا تَأْتِيهِمْ مِنْ آيَةٍ مِنْ آيَاتِ رَبِّهِمْ إِلَّا كَانُوا عَنْهَا مَعْرِضِينَ That in fact, despite the fact that Allah sends a consistent array of signs that you are surrounded by the signs of divinity. There is consistent denial and in fact, not just denial, but it tends to mock the truth. This is that the consistent denial and in fact mockery and Allah's consistent reminder that, well, you know, interesting, but you'll come to know. Okay. Then again, Surah Al-An'am takes us to a common Quranic tool, and that is to, to appeal to human beings to understand the present and the future in terms of understanding the past. أَلَمْ يَرَوْ كَمْ أَهْلَكْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ مِنْ قَرْنٍ مَكَّنَّهُمْ فِي الْأَرْضِ مَا لَمْ نُمَكِّنْ لَكُمْ وَأَرْسَلْنَا السَّمَاءَ عَلَيْهِمْ مِدْرَارًا وَجَعَلْنَا الْأَنْهَارَ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهِمْ فَأَهْلَكْنَاهُمْ بِذُنُوبِهِمْ وَأَنْشَأْنَا مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ قَرْمًا آخَرِينَ That regardless of who you are, don't you reflect upon the fact that epoch after epoch, century after century, 
various human beings who inhabited this earth thought they have things under control. But the cycle, the law of divinity in, as to the cycle of history is always the same. Regardless of the delusion of control, ultimately there is this endless process of destruction and rebirth. And how easy it is for the human ego to assume that what is will be permanently so. But in fact, it's not. Okay. Now, Surah Al-An'am, there is a number of responses to the Meccans, but they're rather interesting responses. Because at this point, the Meccans' dominance over Muslims is total. And the persecution is unrelenting. And the normal human tendency is that if you speak to your oppressor, is that you complain about the oppression. You've hurt me. But, and this is something you note in, in the Quran consistently. It doesn't speak like any human rhetorical device, but rather it challenges Meccans in ways that if you are a persecutor oppressing a group of people, you would, you would find quite odd because the Quran is coming and saying, I am challenging your philosophy of life. I, I'm not even gonna, I'm not going to talk about your crimes against Muslims being committed. I'm going to talk about your philosophical outlook on life. So, first, this is uh, Ayah 7. So, first, it's making clear that the issue is not the, the, what they claim to be the problem with Muhammad. If the Quran was revealed as an actual written book that Muhammad would bring carrying forth, like Moses carried the, the, um, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, they would look at the fact that this illiterate man is, came forth with a complete book as a form of magic. And 
the claim that human beings will often make when they want to mock people who are calling them to their conscience or calling to justice is which is persistent throughout history even to our modern age what is this do you think we this is a society of angels do you think you're an angel well if you you know we'll listen to you if an angel comes to you it is remarkable the the consistent tendency of human beings to refer to the angelic element in order to justify their continued failures to be on the straight path. It is as if saying, well, you know, yeah, we, we could be on the straight path if we were angels or if what was said to us were angels. But since we're not, we're justified. And the most interesting point here is that Allah says, well, you know, if in fact we would have sent down angels to, to speak to you, the entire formula of giving you a choice between good and bad would have been foreclosed. Because if we sent something as conclusive as an angel and you still denied, there would be absolutely no reason to continue giving you the freedom of choice. She's remarkable if you think about it. وَلَوْ أَنزَلْنَا مَلَكًا لَقُدِيَ الْأَمْرِ ثُمَّ لَا يُنْظَرُونَ If in fact an angel would be sent, we wouldn't even give you a chance to khalas, it's over. Now it's, it's interesting because you'll find Islamic tradition replete with claims, like those claims that when Surah Al-An'am was revealed, 70,000 angels came down. And it's contrary to the text of the Qur'an. That's part of the reason that we, we reject these traditions. The text of the Qur'an, always when angels are sent, they are sent to interact with prophets, to deliver a message to prophets. But those who deliver the message to human beings are fellow human beings. If Allah intervenes in the world, in a way that conclusively overrules the laws of causality, then there would be no point for volition and choice. The entire world is built upon laws of causality. Because it's built upon the laws of causality, Allah gives you the option to reflect and to say, 
I believe this, I don't believe this, I make this choice, I don't make this choice. But if Allah would intervene conclusively so that the laws of causality would be foreclosed, then the entire process of volition would end. And first, it tells the Prophet والسلام, this is in verse 10, then remember, other prophets were mocked. وَلَقَدْ اسْتُهْزِئَ بِرُسُلٍ مِنْ قَبْلِكَ فَحَاقَ بِالَّذِينَ صَخْرُوا مِنْهُمْ مَا كَانُوا بِهِ يَسْتَهْزِئُونَ You know, it, this issue of them mocking you is nearly, Allah telling the Prophet, is a non-issue. This is the continuing cycle. And it is not just prophets, but it is those who assume, as we see, the mantle of the ethical code, the Surah Al-An'am, towards the end of the Surah, anchors as the, the heart and core of the Islamic message. Anyone that reminds people of that ethical message, the natural order of things, unfortunately, is that they will confront derision and mockery. And we'll, we'll see what, how, how this point is developed a bit, a bit later in Surah Al-Anam. Again, Allah sort of passively reminds human beings yet again, if you want to understand what happens to people, when it says, قُلْ سِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ ثُمَّ انظروا كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الْمُكَذِّبِينَ the typical way of reading this is, oh, go see what happened to those who didn't believe in Allah. But it is, it is it, if you, again, in the context of Surah Al-An'am, it's a much more subtle point. Reflect, study what happens to human beings. What happens to societies? What happens to communities when they abandon the moral basis, the moral foundations that we will, again, we will encounter in Surah Al-Anam? That it is a, it is a continuous cycle human beings even initially if they imagine they can retain morality and ethics without God it's a delusion they forego God and eventually what they forego are ethics and morality and when their ethics and morality go it is only a matter of time before they collapse without the moral basis upon which 
societies can be founded. Collapsing is, an, in, is inevitable. So for when you notice in verse 10, فَحَاقَ بِالَّذِينَ سَخِرُوا مِنْهُمْ مَا كَانُوا بِهِ يَسْتَهْزِئُونَ فَحَاقَ بِهِمْ It is the, the very system of belief that they utilized to deny the prophets is what does them in. So, we covered 11, then comes one of the most remarkable statements of the Qur'an in the Meccan period. Again, contextually, to the people it was being revealed to at the time. قُلِّ مَنْ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ قُلِّ اللَّهِ Okay, what is in the heavens and earth, everything belongs to Allah. كَتَبَ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ الرَّحْمَةِ بِيَجْمَعَنَّكُمْ إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ لَا رَوْبَ فِيهِ الَّذِينَ خَسِرُوا أَنْفُسَهُمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ وَلَهُ مَا سَكَنَ فِي اللَّيْلِ وَالنَّهَارِ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ the idea that Allah has bequeathed mercy upon the divine self is mentioned twice in Surah Al-An'am. Um, here and verse 54, if I remember correctly. And we know in Elsewhere in the Quran, it's, um, I think it is in, pretty, pretty sure it is in Araf. Yeah. In Surah Al Araf, where Allah said, Rahmat, Rahmat, Rahmati Kulla Shay, that Allah's mercy encompasses all. But you pause, again, you pause at this and you think, So, you are talking to a prophet who, as Surah Al-An'am itself will, will show us in a second, is having an exceptionally difficult time with persecution, an exceptionally difficult time with derision and ridicule. And the followers themselves are about to lose everything they've known in life and begin anew with so many open questions. And at this juncture, Allah then announces to Muslims and to non-Muslims that if you want to understand your Lord, the Lord that you are bound to in a relationship, through a relationship of hand, 
of gratitude, you must understand this Lord as a Lord who is, how do I put it? Who can only be approached from what Allah, Allah's self has decreed upon the divine self. If Sifatullah, the characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, do not, do not define what Allah is. The characteristics of Allah describe the perceptible effect of the divine within the universe. The sifat that the Quran mentions, which is very different than Christian theology, I might add, and also very different than Jewish theology. Allah is too grand for us to simply say that Allah is Allah's sifat, that the attributes of Allah define Allah. You can do that in Judaism, you can do that in Christianity, you can do that in Buddhism, you can do that in Hinduism, but you cannot do that in Islam. What the Sifat is, the Sifat describe the perceptible effect. Perceptible means the, the, the effect that can be perceived of divinity in the universe. So when Allah says, Kataba So you are telling believers and non-believers, and we'll see why this becomes so important in Surah Al-An'am, because this becomes core. To the, to the entire message of Surah Al-Ram. Any effort to understand Allah in a meaningful way or to build a relationship with Allah in a real way that doesn't go through Allah's mercy is flawed and in fact leads to a dead end. Those, I mean, the Oriental scholars once remember in a conference, I don't remember the name of the, just a young kid who just finished his doctorate, but he was an Orientalist from Denmark. And he said to me, Islam is such a, um, I forgot the word he used, but something like, um, Islam is such an arid religion, or Islam is such a, yeah, something like like that. Uh, like you know, like Islam is such a 
dry religion. I can't figure out how this religion produced the Sufi tradition. So his whole thesis was the Sufi tradition couldn't have come from Islam. It must have come from something else. It must have come from Jewish mysticism. It must have come from Christian mysticism. It must have come from Persia. It must have come from Hindu mysticism. The funny thing is that if you are to understand how the Sufi tradition arose in Islam, it is precisely because of Muslims who understood verse 12 in Surah Al-An'am. You cannot properly understand your Lord or build a relationship with your Lord unless it is constructed upon seeing and proper gratitude for the effects of your Lord's Rahmah, mercy, in the universe. So anyone that claims religiosity, this is what gave rise to that, who does not exude mercy is in fact not religious. Anyone who claims religiosity but exudes cruelty, brutality, cannot be religious. They, they have a relationship but a relationship with something other than God. And as we will see in Surah Al-An'am, quite often people build a relationship with the demonic and claim it's God. But the very nature of a relationship with Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala is that Rahmah, as one, I don't remember who, who I, where I read it, it might have been Al-Ghazali Al-Ahiyah, but I'm not sure, who says that Rahmah comes out of the pores of, as, as if Rahmah comes out of the pores of your skin and is the very air that you breathe. But, of course, you pause and wonder if you are among those Muslims who are persecuted and you want to, as, as when, if you read the Torah, the Torah is, was written after Jews, after the destruction of the first temple, and Jews were in captivity. And when they wrote the Torah, you, you, can, you, can, you can feel the anger and the vehemence and the vengeance against their oppressors. They're very angry and upset because of the suffering they go through. So then this, you pause, and you think, how did this impact those Muslims who were persecuted at this time when Allah comes to them in the midst of this persecution and say, it is all about your Lord's Rahmah, your Lord's mercy. 
the obvious question if you're being tortured is, and if you don't have a proper understanding of what hamd is, what mercy? I'm suffering. I'm persecuted. So where is this mercy? But that's precisely it. If you define mercy in terms of purely an egocentric paradigm, whether I am getting, I am benefiting, then you go nowhere. Then you'll never understand that mercy. Okay. So, as often the Quranic style, it it addresses itself to the Prophet ﷺ, but it is clear that in addressing the Prophet ﷺ, it is addressing Muslims at large. This is not in all occasions, but you can distinguish when the Quran is talking to the Prophet exclusively and when it is talking to the Prophet inclusively. So, قُلْ غَيْرَ اللَّهِ أَتَّخِذُ وَلِيَّ فَاطِرِ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضُ وَهُوَ يُطْعِمْ وَلَا يُطْعَمْ Okay, so this is now 14. My wali, my ally in existence, and wali is your 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 ally, your um, what you depend on consistently in everything. So that we understand that Allah is not a corporal reality. Allah doesn't eat. Allah doesn't perform any of the human functions. We, there will be more on this. But, umirtu an akuna awwala man aslam. I have been commanded to be the first of awwala man aslam, the first of those who become Muslim. Or let's see how they, they translate it. The, the study Quran, I was commanded to be the first of those who submit. You pause here again. We know that Islam is to it's the type of submission that is based on alhamd that is based on this relationship of gratitude and also based on understanding Allah through sifatullah and embracing the sifat and internalizing the sifat okay but the phrasing umirtu an akuna awwala man aslam. So 
commentators, the traditional commentators said, well, you know, it basically telling the prophet that be the first, the first who submits, the first who becomes Muslim in a real sense in Mecca. But grammatically, we know that this part of Surah Al-An'am is not just talking to the Prophet, but talking to all of the Prophet's followers. So, it is as if coming and saying to you, and, and this again, this will be developed later in Surah Al-An'am, we'll, there's a continuation to this, so just make a mental note of it until we come back to it. That if your obligation is to understand how to under, undertake what is an a priori duty, and that is to become a Muslim towards Allah, to develop this relationship built on gratitude and built on understanding Allah, understanding Allah's mercy in the universe. Regardless of who, who or what does anything else. So there is a tradition that goes back to Umar ibn Khattab. I, I couldn't find it because I, I, I couldn't spend a lot of time. I, I, that there's the command of Allah is that if the entire universe ceases to be Muslim, then that you be, be, remain the only Muslim on the face of the earth. And if the entire universe abandons Islam, and you are the first to discover that then you become the first Muslim on the face of the earth. So it's like saying, what is the basis of your faith? Is it because your family member became a Muslim? Is it because you related to the Prophet so you became a Muslim? Is it because of it? Or is it in fact because you are a Muslim? And then these remarkably beautiful verses. من يصرف عنه وإن يمسسك الله بضر فلا كاشف له إلا هو وإن يمسسك بخير فهو على كل شيء قدير وهو القاهر فوق عباده وهو الحكيم الخبير This is 18 
that harm and good are all subject to the all-encompassing divine will, that you live in a universe that is entirely within the control of the divine. This is 18. I want to check. Let's check how it's translated first. He, Allah alone, Allah alone holds the uh, holds the reins of fate over people. But but Allah doesn't do so. It's like what Joe was mentioning in his introduction. But it, it is not a haphazard or meaningless or pointless process. Allah does so anchored in knowledge and wisdom. So gratitude, mercy, and a purposeful universe led by a purposeful deity that is all-knowing and all-wise. You see how the building blocks are constructed? Gratitude, mercy, and the existence in a purposeful universe led by an all-knowing and wise deity. So now all of this is going to build to a critical moral point. You don't exist in a, in, in a universe of chance. You don't exist in a universe of indulgences. You don't exist in a universe of jungle competition where you know it's survival of the fittest you exist in a universe that is already pre-owned and pre-claimed and as we'll see this is precisely why this universe must be anchored on an ethical code you are not free to say well it's dog eat dog in this world or whatever that expression is or you know it is the survival of the fittest or is whoever is stronger gets their way that would be true if there was no gratitude there was no mercy and if there is no purposeful universe entered or led by an all-knowing all-perceiving, wise deity. By the way, this is deep philosophy. 
when you read philosophy, this is what we, we you know, what is the basis of any ethical obligation? Okay. So just in the interest of time, I'm, I'm going to have to skip some verses that I don't have much to, to add to. Um, but let's go to 20. So you notice here, then Surah Al-An'am, it's, it's as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is is speaking preemptively to things that will become increasingly important in the life of Muslims that are not important at the moment of revelation, but are soon going to be important. Which is, again, I mean, if you understand Surah like this, is you realize this, this book is just not, not human, it's not possible. So it speaks about, starts talking about Jews and Christians. We know that Jews and Christians in Mecca are in very limited numbers and they don't constitute coherent tribes, they're, they're individuals. But the Quran starts engaging a people that later on will become very important in the life of Muslims. And it says something that is quite remarkable. It says to them, you know your book, this is um, 20. You know your book quite well. And you know that your book prophesizes the coming of an Arab prophet. Which is true in the Deuteronomy, even in the Torah, the copy of the Torah that exists today, you can still read it. And in several other parts of the Bible, but most prominently Deuteronomy. That you know that an Arab prophet is prophesied. And you know this intimately. When, when you say that they know it as if they, like they know their children. But you will go out of your way, and it speaks in the present, but this will happen in the future. You will go out of your way to deny that and to say it is not so. This is not the prophesized prophet. While you know that it is. And which again will be, become central in the theme of Surah Al-An'am وَمَنْ أَظْلَمْ مِمَّنْ افْتَرَى عَلَى اللَّهِ كَذِبًا أَوْ كَذَّبَ بِآيَاتِهِ إِنَّهُ لَا يُفْلِحُ الظَّالِمُونَ Who is worse than that 
who lies about Allah's will. Now keep this in mind because this will soon become a point about law. About saying that Allah decreed X or Y when in fact Allah did not. Or claiming that Allah didn't decree X or Y when Allah in fact did. Now, 22 is the common point or the, the point that we frequently encounter in the Quran about shuraka. <laughs> That, but this here in Surah Al-An'am, it, there is a, a, um, a finer point to this. That when Allah points to human beings and says, where are your shuraka? Shuraka, as we know, are partners, right? Those, the partners that you ascribe to God. And their response, Rabbana ma kunna mushrikeen. We did not ascribe partners to you. This, of course, gave pause to Muslim commentators, even the most, the earliest commentators. Because it is clear if what you are talking about is idols, idols are clear partners to Allah. But here, those who say, God, we, we did not ascribe partners. Because the shuraka is anything that you attribute semi-divine qualities to. Now, you, you say, but wait, I don't attribute semi-divine qualities to anything. Sem full divine qualities is to attribute the power to create. Semi-divine qualities is when you grant them the authority that deserves submission and gratitude. So, shuraka' lillah could be anything. And, and this point will be developed further again in Surah Al-An'am. Shuraka' lillah could be anything such as wealth, such as social status, such as power, such as nationality. If you're in your relationship with Allah, you don't see light and darkness anchored in Allah. If you don't see, as, we'll, as we will see later in Surah Al-An'am, the ethical past anchored in Allah. If you don't have your sense of right and wrong ethically, 
We'll talk about legally, because Surah Al-Anam will talk about it in a second, but ethically, anchor in Allah and you submit the authority that you associate with Allah is something like power, wealth, social status, nationality. All of these are shuraka lillah. So you will in fact tell Allah, but I didn't associate partners with you. And the answer is, yes, you did. Because your, your ethics did not derive from a relationship of hand, a relationship of rahmah, and a relationship of purposefulness in creation. Your, you, you, your ethical code was derived from elsewhere, including, in my opinion, not just wealth, which is a lot of a lot of Muslim thinkers have, have pointed this out: wealth, social status, class, race, and so on. But in my opinion, even uh, false prophets, like false theorists, false scholars. You know, you, you find Muslims. You can't talk to them about anything. Sartre is their god, effectively. Whatever Sartre said, or whatever Heidegger said, or whatever Gadamer said, or you know whatever Foucault said, it's as if they define ethics. They are shuraka lillah. It is very, very clear and simple. You, you, you think that what defines right and wrong, and you don't even bother relating, you could be impressed by Gadamer. I, I personally like Gadamer. I'm a fan of Gadamer. But there's a difference between being a fan of Gadamer and understanding Gadamer in relationship to what Islam and what Allah demands and between slavish submission, as so many Muslim intellectuals do, they, their brains don't exist. It's only the Western theorist that exists, which quite often, because Muslims don't bother reading for the most part, they understand, they don't even understand correctly. Um, I mean, look at the, look at, um, the vast majority, 99.9% of Arabs who call themselves secularists, they have no clue what secularism is about. It's clear that their ignorance, their intellectual ignorance about the philosophy of secularism is incredible. But that's their God. It's a false God. Not based even on anything. Uh, let's uh, let's stop for for us. Um, I'm. I wish I could finish Surat Al-Anam all today, but I I can hear Grace's and Sharif's voice. Don't rush! Don't rush! And you know, 
Yeah, but it, it, it's it's I don't know it's it's very it's dense it's dense. Surah Al-Anam is not something that you could just rush through. Okay, we'll pray Asr and come back. Don't go away anywhere. And then we where do we go? I'm, I'm, I'm waiting because we're coming to an important point that I don't want people to miss. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay, so now we are at 25. وجعلنا على قلوبهم أكنة أن يفقهوه وفي آذانهم وقراه وإن يروا كل آية لا يؤمن بها حتى إذا جاءوك يجادلونك يقول الذين كفروا إن هذا إلا أساطير الأولين وهم ينهون عنه وينأون عنه وإن يهلكون إلا أنفسهم وما يشعرون just the, 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 the language, the... But fundamentally, saying is speaking now to the Prophet and says, listen, they come to you, they listen to you, they appear to engage you. And when they argue with you, they say what every person in every person who in, is determined to deny the truth will say. This is nothing but fables of the ancients. Now, we pass through this point a lot of times very quickly, and we say fables of the ancients, but fables of the ancients means what? It means this is nothing but morality tales. This is nothing but morality tales. And this is nothing but idealism. This is a really critical point because so many of those who are intent on denying the truth, it's, they, they hear what you're saying, but because their hearts are set on denying, the typical claim that people go to, the zone that people go to, is that these are fables of ancients, i.e., in other words, these are morality tales. What does morality tales mean? It means these are ideals. Oh, you're speaking in terms of ideals, not real life. When, the, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the Qur'an as tibyan kulli shay, as 
as explaining everything. It really is. It's just you have to learn how to read it. So what do you do with people who are intent of saying, because when you say these are ideals or these are morality tales, it's not that they're telling you you're wrong, but they're telling you even if you're right, we can't follow it for pragmatic reasons. And as a result, as a result, what they're doing is, is that they are turning away from it and they're preventing others or they're causing others to turn away from it as well. It's like saying, don't listen to this moral talk because these are just morality tests. These are people who don't know what they're talking about. They're just ideals. It's like saying these are just ethics. And, they, and this, just keep this in mind because we'll come back to it. But what they are doing in وَإِنْ يُهْلِكُونَ إِلَّا أَنفُسَهُمْ وَمَا يَشْعُرُونَ By adopting the course of rhetoric, by adopting that rhetorical device of saying, we cannot live according to these ethical principles, which we've talked about as a Surat al-Mustaqim in the past. They, in fact, destroy themselves, but they just don't know that. Out of their ignorance, they're causing their own destruction because these nations without the ethical corpus that is required will collapse unto themselves. It is inevitable. These nations are but ticking bombs. They will implode. It's only a matter of time. But here we have to pause because the Sufi-esque tradition produced a huge discourse on the concept of hujub. What prevents the human heart from, although it hears the truth, it does not feel it. It hears it, it could even know intellectually it's the truth but it can't relate to it. And here from Ibn Ajiba, I'll, I'll just share with you some of what Ibn Ajiba says um, uh, on page 247, because this is classical or typical of a lot of the Sufi uh, tradition on, on this area. So, Ibn Ajiba said that the, the hujub that prevent a human being from relating to the truth are of four kinds. Hijab al-kufr wa shirk that this is the hijab of simply you don't believe in God. وحجاب المعاصي والذنوب that when you commit sins, sins become commitments. When you commit sins, sins become commitments. 
you commit the sin and now either you say I am weak and a lousy human being or you say I am committed to this position and that becomes hijab or third hijab al-inhimak fil khuzuz wa shahawat wa tiba' al-hawa that the, the hijab where you basically become addicted to pleasures but I would like to say addicted to consumption the addiction is very hard to break because you are addicted to consuming and consuming becomes the way you provide positive reinforcement for yourself and not ideas or thoughts or uh, commit or moral commitments. The fourth, حجاب الغفلة والخوض فيما لا يعني والاشتغال بالبطالة وينخرط that the hijab of meaninglessness this is a lot of the kids who sit on social media pontificating and reading garbage suffer that hijab it's a hijab of basically you exist in a world where nothing means anything it's a vacuous world. It's a world where anyone talks and anyone speaks and no one necessarily listens to anyone because nothing means anything. Okay. Then, quoting Al-Ghazali, Ibn Ajiba says, and here I'm going to read it in Arabic and then paraphrase it. الموانع التي تحجب القلب عن الفهم أربعة الأول جعل الفهم مقصورا على تحقيق الحروف بإخراجها من مخارجها فهذا يتولى حفظه شيطان وكل 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 بالقراء يصرفهم عن معاني كلام الله تعالى الثاني أن يكون مقلدا لمذهب سمعه بالتقليد وجمد 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 عليه من غير وصول إلى إليه ببصيرة الثالث أن يكون مصرا على ذنب أو متصفا بكبر أو مبتلى بهوى في الدنيا مطاع فإن ذلك سبب ظلمة القلب وهو كالخبأ على المرأة, على المرأة فيمنع جلية, جلية الحق فيه وهو أعظم حجب القلب وبه حجب الأكثرون الرابع أن يكون قد قرأ تفسيرا ظاهرا واعتقد أنه لا معنى لكلمات القرآن إلا ما يتأول عن ابن عباس ومجاهد وغيرهما وأن ما وراء ذلك تفسير بالرأي منه منه عنه فهذا أيضا من الحجب العظيمة فإن القرآن بحر لا ساحل له وهو مبذول لمن يهرف منه إلى يوم القيامة كل على قدر ساعته وصفاء قلبه What Ghazali says is truly remarkable This is page 248 in Ibn Ajiba and Ghazali says it in Hiya but I didn't have time to pull it out of Hiya So he says Ghazali says that the hujum are of four kinds The first and this, I wish modern Muslims would, would hear this, uh, would, would understand this, are those who approach the Quran from the perspective of reading correctly, pronouncing correctly the rules of tajweed or tartil, they enunciate or 
makharij al-huruf or how to pronounce this and that, but have no interest in its meaning. This describes so many Muslims today. Certain types of Muslims, of course. And Ghazali goes as far as saying that this, this type of attitude is from shaitan. Because it is shaitan that makes you think that this book is here so that you can pronounce the Arabic letters correctly and you can know where the idgham is and where the ghunna is and where the, all that stuff. But this is not a moral code that we live by. It is shaitani. How many people do you know recite the Quran correctly but their ethics is garbage? The second is someone who follows a madhab, who follows legal opinions, but doesn't follow it out of understanding and an analytical depth, but simply out of blind imitation. So this person has a fanatic commitment to this madhab, but their mind is closed. Anything Hanafi is accurate, but any other opinion that might come that is from outside what they're accustomed to is immediately excluded. The third, according to Ghazali, is that you are committed to a sin or sins. And as the commitment of a sin, as I said, is a commitment or the committing of a sin is a commitment. And the fact that you are drawn to a sin causes you to philosophize, philosophize the sin. So you work backwards. This is like uh, my friend Shahab Ahmad, when he wrote his book, What is Islam? wanted to justify drinking alcohol in Islam, so he invented an entire theory that would allow him to say, I'll drink alcohol and I'm still a good Muslim. It, it is, as Ghazali says, it is the worst type of hijab. Because you become like a stained mirror what you see in it is distorted. And fourth, is that you approach the Quran, but out of, you're an ignorant human being. And so you've read an opinion by Ibn Abbas, or you read an opinion by Mujahid, or you read an opinion by Ibn Omar, and you can't, as a result, say, well, this is the meaning of the Quran. Anyone that comes and tells you, well, there's a meaning that Mujahid might have not mentioned, or Ibn Umar or Ibn Abbas might have not mentioned, you reject that out of a commitment to taqlid. And Ghazali says, the problem, you have to understand that the Quran is an ocean that is endless in its riches. Subhanallah, 
I mean, if you took what Ghazali wrote and presented it to our modern Muslim condition, it would be far more fitting in our age than his age. Okay. So, I don't have much to say about 27 and 28, except that they will stand at the time when they meet their accountability. And they tell Allah, you know, give us a chance, send us back, and we'll get it right this time. And Allah says, if I would send them back, they would repeat the same pattern of behavior. Here, it is is like saying, if you're, and this is the best that I've read on this, is like saying that if your iman is built on simple fear, so if if you go confront in the in the hereafter, and then you see that you're going to hellfire, and you tell Allah, send me back, I'll get it right this time. Well, if you get it right, that's iman based solely on fear, not on alhamd and not on al-rahmah. And definitely not understanding the sense of purpose. Then what type of iman is that? Okay. Um, again. Uh, 29, 30, 31, and 32. I'm just going to, to flag that this Quranic expression, قَالُوا يَا حَسْرَتْنَا عَلَى مَا فَرَّتْنَا فِيهَا وَهُمْ يَحْمُلُونَ أَوْزَارَهُمْ عَلَى ظُهُورِهِمْ أَلَى سَاءَ مَا يَذِرُونَ وَمَا الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا إِلَّا لَعْبٌ وَلَهُ وَالْدَارُ الْآخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ لِلَّذِينَ يَتَّقُونَ أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ that image of coming in the hereafter, carrying your sins upon, behind your back, it is as if your sins burden you. And this, as we said before, Allah often talks about sins of human beings as a, in, a dyna, in a confrontational dynamic where you, for the first time, cannot escape seeing the full reality of that sin. Whether Allah tells us that you see it in a form of ard, some form of ard before them, or some form of, of, of being of um, being exposed to these sins by seeing the full full extent of these sins, the full meaning of the sins which we've talked about before, or being burdened by it as if you're actually carrying it on your back. Okay, but then. All of this comes to 
most, one of the most, uh, I think, it's one of the most, um, um, what can I say, I, I, heart-touching points in the, in the, the Quran. So it, it circles back to the Prophet Muhammad which we all know what the circumstances of what he and his followers are going through. And Allah says, قَدْ نَعْلَمُ إِنَّهُ لَيَحْذُنَكَ الَّذِينَ الَّذِي يَقُولُونَ فَإِنَّهُمْ لَا يُكَذِّبُونَكَ وَلَكِنِ الظَّالِمِينَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ يَشْحَدُونَ Okay, so Allah, we know how hard it is for you to be called a liar, to be denied, when in fact you know what the truth is. And this, by the way, applies to anyone that carries that ethical message. But understand it is not about calling you a liar. It is about something else, a disease in the heart, the disease of jahud, the disease of being committed to a philosophy of life that is not about that ethical core that we keep mentioning, but that we'll actually encounter at the very end of the surah. It is, it could be about a sin, it could be about their own ego, it could be, but often when people say you are, you don't know what you're talking about, people say you're an idealist, people say you are talking about the fables of ancients, you are talking about morality tales. It is not about you. It is about them. But then Allah reminds the Prophet, and remember that this is a pattern. Before you, so many Prophets were resisted and denied. So what happened? وَأُوذُوا حَتَّى أَتَاهُمْ نَصْرُنَا وَلَا مُبَدِّلَ لِكَلِمَاتِ اللَّهِ وَلَقَدْ جَاءَكَ مِنْ نَبَعِيَ الْمُرْسَلِينَ So all types of prophets were, were denied before you and they persisted. But then Allah tells the Prophet وَإِنْ كَانَ كَبُرْ عَلَيْكَ إِعْرَاضُهُمْ فَإِنْ اسْتَطَعْتَ أن تبتغي نفقا في الأرض أو سلما في السماء فتأتيهم بآية ولو شاء الله لجمعهم على الهدى فلا تكونن من الجاهلين. And here you pause. So Allah is telling the Prophet is, yeah. And you know what? If it's really so hard for you, well, if you're able to dive deep into the earth or go up in the sky and oblige their request that you bring some type of decisive miraculous proof. Go ahead. It's, it's, it, 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 so it starts out by saying, you know, we, we know you're suffering. But then it says, but be tough. And then it says, and you know what? It is all up to Allah, it's not up to you. If you are able to act on your own and change the reality that you confront, go ahead. But the reality is 
This is exactly the way Allah created creation. And we've encountered this before, that Allah gives human beings a choice and that the majority of human beings will not believe and that a minority will believe, the majority will go astray, a minority will not go astray. So, and don't be among the ignorant. In other words, your attitude and this, imagine again, you are among those people who are going to go through this life commitment with all this persecution and your prophet is being told, yeah, we know you're sad, we understand, but be tough and be patient. And anyway, this is Allah's will and you either accept it the way it is or you are among the jahileen, among the ignorant. This is a God speaking. This is not how human beings speak. So I tell you, it's like, like so many surah in the Quran, if you understand it, it transforms your being. You're, you're telling this, you're in, in many ways, you're embarrassing this man, this prophet, before his opponents, because you're telling him before your, his opponents, you know, it's not up to you. And there's nothing that you can do except what Allah wants done to change the painful reality that you're in. So, I'm going to have to skip 36 um, because there's not, not much I'm going to add to it. Um, okay. Uh, 37 is obvious that they keep insisting that bring, bring us a decisive sign like the same request like bring an angel that speaks to us Okay, but then 38, which deserves a pause. So, وَمَا مِنْ دَابَّةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَا طَائِرٍ يَطِيرُ بِجَنَاحَيْهِ إِلَّا أُمَمٌ أَمْثَالَكُمْ أَمْثَالُكُمْ مَا فَرَّطْنَا فِي الْكِتَابِ مِنْ شَيْءٍ ثُمَّ إِلَى رَبِّهِمْ يَحْشَرُونَ so you pause, if you say, so hold on. So we just went through where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is humbling the Prophet, consoling the Prophet and humbling the Prophet simultaneously at the same time. And then saying it is no supernatural occurrence, no, no occurrence that does not follow the laws of causation will take place to cause people to, to oblige people's demand for decisive proof. It, it, is, it is the proofs, the proofs that exists 
in creation are the proofs that people will have to rely on for better or for worse, for belief or for kuf. But then it comes and says something again that we pass through too quickly. There is no nothing that no beast that walks the earth and nothing that flies in the sky. So in other words, creatures. Except that they they are Uman Amthalukum. Now, normally this is translated as communities, just like you. And then it says, And we have not, this book is a comprehensive guide. And at the end, all will be before the Lord. And you probably say, well, why, how does the discourse about confronting the truth, about al-Khujub, refusing to follow the truth, about those who listen to the Prophet but say these are morality tales, we're not going to listen, and that they are not, it's not about denying you, it's about an, an illness in their heart, what does all of this have to do with that everything that Allah has created is umam amthamukum? Until you realize you research umam amthamukum. Umam amthamukum. Ummah, yeah, it could be communities, nations. But an ummah is any collectivity that sets or that follows an order. So it is like Allah is saying, earlier Allah alerted us that a creation is purposeful. But here Allah is saying, Note that all creatures on earth or in the air follow a preordained order. In, a, in two words, natural law. And you'll see why this connects to the rest of the surah. Allah is saying that understand there is a natural law to creation this entire creation is founded on a natural law what the rest of the surah will tell us is that this natural law is ethical it's an ethical code it's a surat al-mustaqeem 
people will jump up and down, make all type of loopholes and, and go left and right to deny the existence of this natural law. It is like the natural law of Allah's rahmah, Allah's mercy in code. There are people that exist inventing a law other than Allah's natural law and imagine that this can be their compass. And people who understand the, the, the ethical compass or the compass of morality that already exists that manifests in every living thing we see. Then the meaning becomes very clear. They want an ayah. They want an ayah. They say, bring us a miracle. And Allah is saying, you know what the miracle is? The miracle is in the natural law of creation. The miracle is all around you. The miracle is the fact that I created you and gave you a choice, and as we will see, but I anchored this choice in an ethical code. And in fact, you know, I'm going to do something very unusual. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to do something very unusual just so, uh, you know, those who are going to become impatient because patience and knowledge is not easily acquired. And I'm going to give you a hint about the natural law that Allah is pointing out to. The ethical code will be, it will be, re, um, uh, what is the word I'm, I'm looking for? Um, uh, not uncovered, but... Um, Disclosed? Revealed. Revealed, mm -hmm. bit by bit. And it's, 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 it's an entire natural law system. But if you look at 151, and 152 and 153 do you see how far we've jumped قل تعالوا اتلوا ما حرم ربكم عليكم الا تشركوا به شيئا وبالوالدين احسانا ولا تقتلوا اولادكم من املاق نحن نرزقكم واياهم ولا تقربوا الفواحش ما ظهر منها وما بطن ولا تقتلوا النفس التي حرم الله الا بالحق and so on, so on. This then is the ethical code. But the reason the argument is being constructed the way it's constructed, because the message is extremely layered and extremely profound, because it is going to shape the way you understand law and the way you understand morality and the way you understand creation and the way you understand the relationship of all of that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
Okay. So, but until we get there, we have to be patient because we're still at 38 and I, and I want to get 150. May, may Allah. <laughs> okay. And of course, this consistent theme throughout the Quran, the deviation from Allah's Sirat, from Allah's, and as we said last time, the Sirat is an ethical course. It's a commitment to an ethical course. Those who abandon that quest to remain on the ethical course drift into darkness. And we'll see the, the, the result of this darkness later on in Surah Al-Iran. Okay. So let's go to 42 now. So, وَلَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا إِلَىٰ أُمَمٍ مِنْ قَبْلِكَ فَأَخَذْنَاهُمْ بِالْبَأْسَاءِ وَالضَّرَّاءِ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَتَضَرَّعُونَ فَلَوْلَا إِذْ جَاءَهُمْ بَأْسُنَا تَضَرَّعُوا وَلَكِنْ قَصَدْ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَزَيَّنَ لَهُمُ الشَّيْطَانُ مَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ فلما نسوا ما ذكروا به فتحنا عليهم أبواب كل شيء حتى إذا فرحوا بما أوتوا أخذناهم بغتة فإذا هم مبلسون فقطع دابر القوم الذين ظلموا والحمد لله رب العالمين Now, these ayat, these are the ones I read are just from 42 to 45. Allah We've been exposed in Hud, Yunus, and Yusuf layers of what happens when nations deviate from that ethical compass that we keep referencing. But here, Allah adds another element and says, that it is not simply a matter of there are women that have prophets and the prophets try very hard to bring them to guidance they deny the prophets and they're destroyed but how about women that have a dynamic in which there is not necessarily a living prophet amongst them. So, first, they're tested. And the test is to see whether, in fact, confronting hardship, they will turn to Allah. But the reality is, Often, when nations are tested with hardship, they don't turn to God. They turn to superstition, 
they turn to old systems of oppression, they turn to systems of class, they turn to systems of racialization, they turn to autocratic dictator rulers, they turn to all types of things but God. And then comes the very surprising element that Surah Al-An'am will introduce and will develop much later on in the Quran. That when they do so, in fact, Allah gives them the illusion, gives them the illusion of success and allows them to prosper. So you have the great guided leader who claims to be effectively a god. And that leader comes and takes an ummah out of hardship. And instead of the ummah returning to Allah's philosophy in, in the Kelm, in, in creation, it puts all its beliefs and all its hopes and aspirations in the greatly inspired guided leader. And for a while, it seems like things are going well. Until a point where Allah takes them by what they deserve. They are the the consequences of their obliviousness. Now, if you studied, I used to be a political science major, uh, you know, or it was for a while I was going to write my dissertation in the political science field, and there was a professor called Yuan Linz who studied the creation of authoritarian regimes and how authoritarian regimes worked, etc., etc. And I used to be used to be one of my professors that I wrote. Anyway, I did a lot of work with him. Anyway, what what is remarkable? This area stayed with me because how many ummah is tested with hardship, and instead of understanding that it is about ethics and morality, about the principles of justice and equity. They follow a ruler who can very openly flout the principles of justice and equity. And even the principles of simple decency. And for a while, it seems like things are going okay until the point of utter and complete collapse. I would suggest to you, and I told this to you, to you I told this to Yuan Linz many years ago, because he, he studied a lot of authoritarian regimes in Europe and so on. And I told him, you know, you want to understand the cycle of authoritarianism, study Muslim countries. They will provide much clearer examples than what you see in Europe. Because in Europe, even authoritarian regimes like the Spanish regime or the Italian regime, 
there remained an intellectual core that never gave up on the ethical nucleus of things. There remained an intellectual core that said fascism is wrong because it is unethical, immoral, in Spain and in Italy. And so when fascism collapsed in Italy and in Spain, that intelligentsia brought back society to the principles of ethics fairly rapidly. But authoritarianism in a lot of Muslim countries, no ethical quorum remains whatsoever. So even when the collapse happens, there's nothing to return to. It's all been corrupted. And that's why, subhanAllah, look at 45. فقطع دابر القوم الذين ظلموا والحمد لله رب العالمين which is a, a remarkable Quranic commentary on this whole dynamic so it's as if Allah is saying this is the way I treat the unjust and when, when you study the collapse of the unjust what should be your reaction is Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. But it is harsh because, I mean, take a country like Egypt, which put its 48, its entire collapse, they put all their dreams on an autocrat, a despot, without any ethical core. Abd uh, Nasser, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, no, 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 Egypt, not, no, not Turkey. Oh, Abd Nasser, Abd Nasser, Abd Nasser. The collapse comes completely in '67, when Israel destroys the entire Egyptian army in six days. Then. When Allah says, فَقُطِعَ دَابِرُ الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا فَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ So many people suffered because of their implicit immorality. Because they, they supported something immoral. Okay. Forty-six, forty-seven. I'm not gonna say. You know, I, I always feel guilty because every ayah in the Quran is very important. But I, I have to, you know, if I if I don't have something new to say, I move on. Um, Again, I'm not going to say anything about 48, 49. I think that meaning is obvious. Um, 
50, some, a common theme in the Quran where constantly Allah reminds the Prophet to tell the very people that persecute him, I have no powers of my own. I don't know the future, I don't know the ghaib, I, I am just a prophet. Uh, which is fascinating when you read the polemics of the, the um, people who were opposed to the prophet, is that they constantly tease him about is, you know, they, they say, I go, it's, uh, there's a Jahili poem, I can't remember it now, but a Jahili poem that basically says, you know, when I want to know the future, I go to Araf and I, to, to uh, uh, Munajim, who will tell me the future, but this prophet of Islam doesn't even know the future. What, you know, a, 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 a simple um, uh, fortune teller, teller is worth more than the prophet of Islam. Okay, then now from from fifty two onwards. Oh, before I, I forgot something. Sorry. Uh, go back to go back to forty seven. قُلْ أَرَأَيْتُكُمْ إِنْ أَتَاكُمْ عَذَابُ اللَّهِ بَغْتَةً أَوْ جَهْرَةً هَلْ يُهْلَكُ إِلَّا الْقَوْمُ الظَّالِمُونَ 47 which they can you it's a rhetorical question what if or what will be your state if God's punishment befalls you either suddenly or in a gradual, perceptible manner. But then it poses another question. But then will any but evil doing or those who are those who are unjust or evil evil folk ever be destroyed or this of course invited so many Quranic commentators to pause because if it's saying if it's saying only the unjust will be destroyed we know empirically that that's not true because we know that when unjust societies collapse, even the pious will suffer. So this gave rise to another debate that goes back to many of the very early commentaries, commentators of the Quran. Is the Quran or is Allah saying that ultimately what, what the Quran in fact does say explicitly elsewhere, that ultimately 
it is the just that end up prevailing. But in what sense do they end up prevailing? Well, the easy answer is to say, well, they, they prevail in the hereafter, in Jannah. But that's a cop-out. Because the way it's phrased, Allah says, you know, about those who prevail in the hereafter plenty of times, very explicitly. But the way it's phrased raises the question or gave rise to a very rich discussion as to how the just, although the just are destroyed or exterminated at times, but ultimately it is justice that always the principle of justice, the principle of ethics that constantly prevails. Exactly as in the that falsity will always be vanquished. It is as if Allah is saying the Sunnatullah account, the natural law of God, is that it is the ethical and the moral as principles that survive even as constant ideals and aspirations in humanity. It's a very rich discussion. I wish I could spend more time on it because there are a lot of, a lot of scholars who have said very interesting things about it, but okay. okay. Now, we start in 52 where Allah starts, in fact, dealing, revealing the moral code that we're talking about. An ayah 52. And it starts with something that we've encountered before. وَلَا تَطْرُدُ الَّذِينَ يَدْغُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاوَةِ وَالْعَشِيِّ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَهُ مَا عَلَيْكَ مِنْ حِسَابِهِمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ وَمَا مِنْ حِسَابِكَ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ فَتَطْرُدُهُمْ فَتَكُونَ مِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ وكذلك فتنا بعضهم ببعض ليقول أهؤلاء من من الله عليهم من بيننا أليس الله بأعلم بالشاكرين؟ so it starts out by affirming something we've encountered before. we know that the Meccans, the Meccan elite, would often tell the Prophet. Maybe we would be willing to talk to you if you weren't surrounded by the, uh, the, the rabble of society. If you weren't surrounded by slaves and poor people, m maybe we can talk to you. We can talk to you as elite speaking to elite. But we can't talk to you as elite speaking to commoners. So distance the commoners and we can speak. And again comes the Quranic emphasis, which we encountered before, that the Prophet under no circumstances is allowed to do that. Certain things cannot be compromised. And what is built on an ethical compromise cannot be ethical. So, but here we get 
is further subtlety that comes from the various reports related about this particular area. That there are people who are not Muslim. The tradition says Ahnaf, but when the tradition says Ahnaf, we're not quite sure what they are. Meaning that those who were called Ahnaf ranged from, other than the fact that they were monotheists, but they had not yet converted to Islam and they, what was known about them is that they were, they worshipped Allah consistently and piously, but in their own way. They didn't, they were not Muslim, they didn't join Muslims in prayers, but they worshipped Allah in their own way. And some Muslims told the Prophet, we are persecuted because we're Muslims. Why are we, our resources are scarce already? Why are we tolerating these people in our midst? And that this ayah was not just a response to the elite of Mecca, but was also a response to Muslims in saying that those who worship God sincerely, notice here, ما عليك من حسابهم من شيء. It is not up to you to hold them to account. Their accountability is not. We're talking about the Muslims who are poor. It wouldn't say ما عليك من حسابهم من شيء because they're one of you. The Prophet is not interested in holding them to account. But it is not up to you to hold these people who are not Muslim, but committed to Allah, to account. So you find people like Jilani and Ibn Arabi and Ibn Ghazali said some even went to say that the that this is precisely why in Islamic law Ar-Ruhban um, or what's um, Ar-Ruhban uh, like um, you know people who are worshiping in in, in huh. No, no. Uh, uh, people who are worshipping in... Um, oh, oh uh, uh, a monk? Yeah, like monks. Like, yeah, like mon you, you, can't, you can't hurt them, even if there's warfare. That ma alaykam in hisabim min shay' becomes an ethical principle in itself. Okay. 
أليس الله بأعلم بالشاكرين Only Allah knows who is truly grateful meaning who is truly has a sincere relationship with Allah and who doesn't This is why some commentators claim that this these ayat later on became abrogated and as I said before I don't believe in abrogation in the Quran and to, to claim that they're abrogated is ridiculous but the reason that they said they're abrogated is because they claimed that they expounded tolerance towards um, what time is it 840 okay أنه من عمل منكم سوءا بجهالة ثم تاب من بعده وأصلح فإنه غفور رحيم. So now, as we said, we're starting to reveal this ethical, natural law. So as to the believers, the foundational principle between you. Is something that we say all the time but rarely mean or even understand. Salamun alaikum. The relationship that defines our interactions must be founded on everything that would induce, instead of anxiety towards each other tranquility and safety towards each other. One of the saddest thing is that when you find Muslims use salam alaikum and then produce anxiety in each other right, right after saying it. That the social obligation that you owe your fellow human being is to think about the ways that you can communicate safety to that fellow human being, not insecurity and threat. That's the essence of the ethical code of Salamun Alaikum. Interestingly, people like Rousseau, who plagiarized this from Islam later on, and made it into the theory of social contract. It says the first obligation in the social contract is to render safe. That there's a make-believe social contract in which we all come out of state of nature. And Rousseau, remember that Rousseau had studied in the Islamic tradition. And we all come out of state of nature and we agree to communicate to each other safety. Centuries before or so, the Quran told us this. The obligation is to communicate safety. 
That is precisely why right after it, Allah reminds you again for the second time in Surah Al-An'am, كَتَبَ رَبُّكُمْ عَلَىٰ نَفْسِهِ الرَّحْمَةِ That the guiding principle is mercy. So, the social bond between you that supports the paradigm of salam alaykum must be mercy. So if you're constructing a society and you'd say, what is our guiding principle in the way we are going to talk about social obligations, the way we are going to talk about social morality, the way we are going to talk about our constitutional foundations. And according to the Quran, mercy. Everything is derived from the principle of mercy. Very different than the principle of competitiveness and equal opportunity. And that Allah is forgiving and that whoever commits a sin out of ignorance and then repents, Allah forgives. وَكَذَلِكَ نُفَصِّلُ الْآيَاتِ وَلِتَسْتَبِينَ سَبِيلُ الْمُجْرِمِينَ 55 makes it again clear what I'm talking about. And this is precisely how we spell out the rules for you. And so you can understand the path, Sabila al-Mujrimin, the path of, the, of those who are completely misguided. It's like saying, we are differentiating for you between the path that takes people towards all the evil doing that human beings end up doing and the path that Allah wants. Okay. And 56. A critical transition, this you find in 56, um, 57, and 58. that let's all understand the principle upon which Muslims functions. قُلْ إِنِّي نُهِيتُ أَنْ أَعْبُدَ الَّذِينَ تَدْعُونَ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ Your boss could be whatever your boss is. Your boss is your ego, your boss is your social structure, your boss is your tribe, your nation, whatever, but my commitments are anchored around the divine. قُلْ لَا أَتَّبِعُ أَهْوَاءَكُمْ قَدْ ضَرَلْتُ إِذًا وَمَا أَنَا مِنَ الْمُهْتَدِينَ And for me, I am bound by a divine law, not your whim. So a clear point of demarcation between those who say, well, our whim says that the organizing principle is competitiveness 
or natural selection or you know whatever or the the free market but I am not free to follow this ahwah because I am committed to a past that comes from the divine okay and and this is underscored further in 56 and 57 and 58 and 59 we go back again in Allah reminding you that they're not even وَمَا تَسْقُطُ مِنْ وَرَقَةٍ إِلَّا يَعْلَمُهَا وَلَا حَبَّةٍ فِي ظُلُمَاتِ الْأَرْضِ وَلَا رَطْبٍ وَلَا يَابِسٍ إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ مُبِينٍ That in order to follow this ethical path, you must become thoroughly vested in a purposeful universe. So purposeful that not even a leaf or a seed in the depths of the darkness of the ground exists there or without Allah's knowledge and without it being part of Allah's purpose. So no insect, nothing you see that transpires in your existence is simply accidental or, or by chance. Now you notice in 60 وَهُوَ الَّذِي يَتَوَفَّاكُمْ بِاللَّيْلِ وَيَعْلَمُ مَا جَرَحْتُمْ بِالنَّهَارِ ثُمَّ يَبْعَثُكُمْ فِيهِ لِيُخْضَى أَجَلٌ مُسَمَّى ثُمَّ إِلَيْهِ مَرْجَعُكُمْ حَتَّى يُنْبِئُكُمْ بِمَا كُنْتُمْ تَعْمَلُونَ وَهُوَ الْقَاهِرُ فَوْقَ عِبَادِهِ Again repeated وَيُرْسِلُ عَلَيْكُمْ حَفَظَةً حَتَّى إِذَا جَاءَ حَدَكُمُ ثم ردوا إلى الله مولاهم الحق ألا له الحكم وهو أسرع الحاسبين so, وهو الذي يتوفاكم في الليل of course there, this we can get this we'll get into this in, in, a, in another surah about what death at night means or what الوفاء at night means but What's most the, the interesting, just underscoring that in the Sufi literature, this is understood entirely metaphorically. That in darkness of the soul, it's as if a death. And when you allow Allah's light to shine in, it is as if a rebirth. So there is some very beautiful things written in the Sufi tradition about verse 60. But let's go to 61. Okay, so again Allah reminds us that That 
It is Allah that ultimately controls the affairs and fates of people. But now, Hafadha, let's see how they do. Some understood Hafadha as specifically Malaika. That's not the interpretation I favor. The second school said Hafadha is Allah intervenes through heavenly means. That in other words, if you take your life, Allah intervenes repeatedly in your life. Most of the time, most of the time, to save you from the follies of your own deeds or to prevent the exposure of your sins until you insist on wrongdoing often enough that Allah no longer intervenes. This goes back to what we've talked about that in Allah reminds us that in fact Allah is constantly intervening to prevent us from our own, the evil of our own deeds. But that while these interventions are ongoing, it all comes to an end when the time of death comes. And there, it is simply a, a matter of delivery. That there's no if, ands, or buts. The soul is taken. Okay. Um, shall we break for Maghrib? Okay, let's break for Maghrib. We, we've lost a few people, but I know this is a long surah, long perseverance, long session. May Allah reward you for persevering, um, but we'll get there inshallah. Then Allah, in this rhetorical device which Allah consistently weaves in moral truth with reminders of created realities and spiritual realities and psychological realities as if Allah tells us a rather obvious point. You cannot be compartmentalized human beings. Human beings, in order to be fully human, their ethical awareness has to be in equilibrium with their psychological condition and with their social condition. Human beings, when they are conflicted, the results are often pathological. 
And I'll show you in a second how Allah expresses this very same idea to us, but in typical Quranic eloquence. So, 63. لَإِنْ أَنْجَانَ مِنْ هَذِهِ لَنَكُونَنَّ مِنَ الشَّاكِينَ قُلُوا اللَّهِ يُمْجِيكُمْ مِنْهَا وَمِنْ كُلِّ كَرْبٍ ثُمَّ أَنْتُمْ تَشْرِكُونَ So Allah takes us back to a psychological reality. The truth of the matter about human beings is that when they despair, they reach to Allah in the sense if they are believers, they reach to Allah as the God that they believe in, or even when they are not believers, they reach to the equivalence of Allah. So often they'll talk about higher power, or they'll say something like, God, if you exist, please help. Or they'll say, or, you know, they'll want to reach out to uh, my guardian angels or some nonsense like that. But the truth of the matter is, is that in every curb, in every hardship, it is Allah who is with you. But consistently the psychological pattern with human beings is that right before they go into an operation, Ya Rab, Ya Rab, Ya Rab, the operation ends successfully, quickly. Their, their, their devotional state is compromised. If they're looking for a job or need livelihood or whatever the need, it is consistently that same dynamic. So, Allah then remind us, it's like Allah saying, in this compartmentalized state, where you think Allah fits in when I need Allah, but Allah has no place when things are going well. Or Allah fits in when the laws of Allah, or what I claim to be are laws of Allah, serve my ego as a Muslim. We often find this, as we'll see in Surah Al-An'am, because Surah Al-An'am remarkably talks about this, that sometimes the male ego will cite what they claim to be Allah's laws when it is a means of pumping up the male ego at the expense of the other gender, women. These are all compartmentalized souls. They haven't understood the relationship between gratitude, hand, rahmah, mercy, and a purposeful existence. They haven't understood how all of these lead to an ethical project, a, an existence anchored in ethics. So, their shirk is a constant state. They constantly keep like a, like a pendulum going back and forth. So look how Allah then comments about this. 
قل هو قادر على أن يبعث عليكم عذابا من فوقكم أو من تحت أرجلكم أو يلبسكم شيعة ويذيق بعضكم بأس بعض انظر كيف نصرف الآيات لعلهم يفقهون وكذب به قومك وهو الحق قل لست عليكم بوكيل لكل نبأ مستقر وسوف تعلمون So Allah reminds you of the reality of this compartmentalized self. A compartmentalized self is in conflict with itself. It is not at peace. And Allah comes and says, well, if this is your reality, remember that Allah could send upon you the type of torment that is directly a product of the compartmentalized or ethically disintegrated self. And I use the words here purposefully. The ethically disintegrated self, a self that has undergone ethical disintegration. It is a self that has become relativistic, non-committal, doesn't believe in knowledge, doesn't believe in ideals, doesn't believe in goodness, doesn't really believe that God can guide. God is there to be worshipped, but not actually followed. What is the natural result of a collectivity of people of, who suffer from such a social pathology? They turn against each other. They become Shia. They war. It's like the self when it wars with itself. You have a war going within you, eating away at you. Well, here, that phenomena becomes socialized. And that is why when Abu Huraira is asked about verse uh, 65, Abu Huraira is asked, who is this verse revealed? Who is this verse talking about? And Abu Huraira says, I asked the Prophet and he said, this was revealed about you Muslims. There is another hadith that is not authentic, which says that Allah has decreed the punishment of, upon his ummah till the end of days that it will always uh, be in, in, but that hadith is not authentic anyway but the point then is a fractured society that has undergone moral disintegration what is the natural result the natural result is violence and tyranny or tyranny and violence and cruelty because in the same because people who are conflicted and compartmentalized are capable of acts of great cruelty they don't understand that the organizing principle the divine organizing principle upon which all society must be structured is mercy 
And so they are capable of great bets, great hardship and cruelty against one another. And this is what happens when you depart from spiritual truth. See how it's, it's constructed? It is as if, and subhanAllah, when the fitna, the second fitna happened, so many Muslims returned to this very verse and said, have too many people entered Islam who don't understand Surah Al-An'am? And that's why we have this fitna. It's remarkable. Because that tells you that this earlier generation understood exactly what Surah Al-Imam was talking about. Okay. And look, look how we explain to you matters. Perhaps you will come to understand. Whenever you say, you see Allah saying something like this, Allah is telling you, reflect upon my ayat because what I'm telling you is something deep. And you might easily miss it if you're not reading deeply. And this is the truth. And when you meet the people who will come and say, oh, what are you talking about? Tell them, you know, all I have to, my role is to tell you things as they are. But it is not my job to make you believe. If you don't want to believe it and you want to test it out and you want to say, well, no, this is not the way it is. Okay, fine, go. Typically, this is 67. Typically, it is translated, as you will find, I'm sure, the study Quran has translated it. For every tithing, there is a fixed setting, and soon you shall know. Okay? But no. It is not for every tithing, there is a fixed setting. It's like saying, For every it is like saying for every natural set of occurrence there is a law and you will come to know. So once again Surah Al An'am comes and reminds us of natural law. This is the natural law that Allah has included in creation. 
You can learn this natural law and heed the warning, or you can choose to ignore the natural law and suffer the consequences. It is only time that will educate you. Okay. So, we will stop at 68, inshallah, and pick up from another ethical principle about the morality of discourse. Until, inshallah, by the time we leave Surah Al-An'am, you realize something. Surah Al-An'am prepared Muslims who were going to undertake the Hijrah to Medina with a, an ethical constitution. That is precisely why the first thing that the Prophet ﷺ did when he arrived in Medina, he drafted the constitution. This wasn't because the Prophet was a brilliant political theorist, but because he was a student of the Quran. Surah Al-An'am was a, an ethical constitution delivered to Muslims before they were about to build a state. And when you study what the Prophet ﷺ did upon arriving in Medina, you find a faithful execution of Surah Al-An'am. Okay, inshallah, next halaqa, which I pray, inshallah, will be next Tuesday. Pray that Allah gives me the strength and health to do it next Tuesday. We will start with 68, and inshallah, I hope we will finish Surat Al-An'am. Um, Grace, come, you must officially close. I don't officially close anything. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I honestly, I really didn't want it to end tonight. <laughs> Truly brilliant and amazing. I mean, there's just simply no words. Um, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I feel like I say this every time, um, but it, I feel like it just, you, you just don't think it can get any more powerful or meaningful or special. And it always does. Um, and so, you know, um, these words don't seem to do the job, but I, you know, I'm so grateful. I know everyone here is so grateful for this knowledge because it just pulls us deeper and deeper in, and I think it really bolsters like our commitment. Um, because again, time and time again, you just see how these words completely apply to the time that we're living in. And underscore again, I think what Rami said is, I like before this, I never understood like why this was a message that people were willing to die over, and how that you know the, this commitment to a beautiful faith. I mean, I, I don't without this knowledge, it's really hard to imagine, you know, like okay, what's the big deal about the Quran? And it's really sad to see, I think, how far people have you know, moved away from the idea that the Quran has something to say to them, you know, and so in some ways I'm excited because this is something that I think we can build on in the future for hopefully, you know, future generations, for our children, for ourselves, for our friends, our families, um, and at the same time, it's, it's just so sad that it, you know, it's, 
it seems like it's been a while, like this was so much of this beauty was lost. Um, but alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, it just increases, I think, the gratitude that we have an opportunity to receive this knowledge and may Allah help us all to share it with others or you know do what needs to be done um, to give it its full due. And thank you because if you hadn't invested your life in understanding this, we would never be able to receive it. And inshallah. Um, I pray that you know we will continue on Tuesday or possibly Wednesday, I guess. We'll kind of see how it goes. So stay tuned and inshallah um, please continue to pray. Um, you know, for I think I think it's safe to just share that. You know, if you if you have taken in a lot of the lessons here, and you understand, as we are continually told in the Quran, that you know, Shaitan is our avowed enemy. We've now passed hundreds of halakas. I think this is the 60th surah. Now that we've covered, um, it makes rational sense that it's just going to get harder and harder because what we're doing here is is so important and it has been extremely difficult as people know with illness and pain and all of that um, i think it you know um it's a it's a validation that this is an extremely important project um, we need people's support we need people's prayers um you know like what we've received in the first 60 surahs is absolutely mind-blowing and to think that there are another 54 to go and we haven't even gotten to Surah Baqarah and Imran and some of these other things um, you know I, I, it's it's mind-blowing absolutely mind-blowing so may Allah preserve you and help all of us here um, you know keep it together so we can see it through to the end thank you everyone um, for for being with us and um, thank you for your prayers inshallah we'll see you very soon so before actually, let me take a picture of the because um, I don't know like what. Oh, and sorry, let me say one last thing. If you're just joining us late, go back to the beginning because if you missed Joe's introduction, it was fire, as someone said. So um, it was really powerful. I don't want you to miss it. So please watch it.